All right, and welcome back to the Flickers Podcast, episode 32. Um, this is a really special episode, and we we're really excited to have on um, Adam Scorgi, who's a film producer, and he's worked with some amazing people, and he's worked on some amazing documentaries. And yeah, we really cover everything from uh, his life growing up wanting to be an actor at first, to then uh, become, going into the filmmaker business, to then his, his feature debut was a documentary talking about weed, which... Um, he, he, which is a pretty crazy on it to start your first feature to be something so kind of uh, divisive. Um, but yeah, it was a really fun episode. Did you enjoy the episode, John? Yeah, it was a really fun episode to, um, to do and a really good interview. He was, really, he was a really relaxed guy and really, really nice. Um, you know, he, he actually grew up in Australia for a little bit. So that was, all, that was a good starting point for us just to talk about that for a little bit. But he also, you know, interviewed um, so, so many people and has worked with so many people such as Richard Branson, uh, Joe Rogan. He's, he's also appeared in the Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan podcast. Mm. And he, he interviewed Snoop Dogg and uh, Denny Trejo and Wiz Khalifa for all these yeah. um, for these documentaries that focus on um, the marijuana business and the, the war on drugs as well as Denny Trejo and his life. Yeah, it was really amazing. And just to hear his love for storytelling and his love for, for documentary making. And um, yeah, we really covered a lot. And I think for anyone out there who wants to be, is an aspiring filmmaker or wants to be uh, an artist in any sort of way, you'll take a lot from this interview, I think. He really shares a lot of uh, gems and nuggets. And also for anyone who's just a movie fan or, or just um, likes watching movies, you'll take a lot away from it as well because he shares some pretty interesting stories, whether that's uh, Danny Trejo jail stories or whatever. But yeah, he, he was a really interesting guy, a really nice guy. Um, and it was just an amazing chat and we got so in depth. So without further ado, let's go into the uh, episode. When we were talking earlier, you said um, that you had uh, lived in Australia for a bit when you were younger. Um, and we were wondering like, how long was that for? Or was that for your parents' work? Yeah, my stepdad worked in oil and gas. So we were in Brisbane uh, from the time I was about eight till 11. And coming from Edmonton, Alberta, I don't know if anybody down under knows where that is, but if we have <laughs> nine months of winter, it's cold. So to move to Australia for me, like I was a total like video game kid before then. I used to live on my Nintendo. But when I came to Australia, I didn't want to touch my Nintendo. We had a pool for the first time. I used to go and catch beardies and lizards <laughs> and toads everywhere. And and then, but I had the first Nintendo in Australia. Uh, Nintendo didn't release in Australia for like another year and a half. Everybody only had. So, oh, so you brought it. Yeah. So everybody wanted to come to my house to play Nintendo. And for the first time ever, I was like, guys, I want to play outside. Like I lived with nine. <laughs> I want to go and experience, but everybody lived there. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen the outside a million times. We're bored of it. Right. We want to play Nintendo. And I had all the games, like I had like POW and Double Dragon, Shinobi. None of that was there yet. So like friend, everyone wanted to come to my house and I, you know, I clue in now, but when I was a kid, I was kind of like, well, no one really want to hang out with me. They just want to play with my Nintendo. I'd have like six kids be like, oh, what are you doing after school? I'm like, I don't know. I want to go swimming. They're like, no, no, don't you want to play Nintendo? I'm like, no, I don't want to play Nintendo. But this is before <laughs> global distribution really changed. Now yeah. it doesn't quite release like that. But I, this was, I would have moved down there in 88. So I don't think Nintendo hit there till like 89 or 90, I, right? So it was, I ahead. literally probably the, probably the first one on the continent. We had to have an adapter that was like 
the adapter was bigger than the systems to get it to work because you guys are on a different like uh, electric frequency down there, yeah, right? Yeah, and the yeah. plugs are different. Too. The yeah. plugs look different, so yeah. We, That's we had to have a crazy adapter to get it to work. I remember my dad had to go to like three electronic stores to be able to get it to work, but we we <laughs> figured it out. It seemed like mad. I loved I loved Oz as a kid. I I, I wish um, I wish we could have been there longer. To me, it seemed like a, a big part of my life, even though I was only there for three years. I absolutely right. loved it there. So, did you move straight back to Canada after Australia? Yeah, I moved. I lived with my mom and my stepdad down there, and then I moved back to uh, British Columbia. I went and moved with my dad in uh, Trail, BC, a tiny town in British Columbia. When I when I came, because my parents moved, they actually left Australia and were moving to Singapore. Right. So. Yeah. So I lived in Singapore after that and I didn't like Singapore. So then I moved with my dad. I wasn't Singapore was schools were way too strict and I was not very good at school and it was not, <laughs> it was not, I did not like it nearly as much as I, I love. I liked Oz. I wouldn't have wanted to left, but then I moved with my dad, my biological father at that point. Right. Um, cause I was thinking that too, cause you kind of get a, a sense in your, um, movies, especially in the culture high, there's an international aspect. And so I'm like, oh, this is cool. He kind of seems to have a, like a global view on things and, and is interested into how other countries view a certain topic um, as opposed to just focusing on Canada or just focusing on America. Um, and so I, I found that was really interesting. Do you, do you try to kind of keep up with um, the way other countries look at certain topics that you're exploring and stuff? Is that something you're, you find important? Absolutely. And that's interesting. You picked up on that because, yeah, I mean, I lived, I, I traveled a lot by the time I was like 11, I'd lived in three different countries and, you know, been to American schools in Singapore and lived in Australia, very different cultures. So that, that's interesting. You picked and then the culture, I, we definitely wanted to do that because the culture I, is kind of a follow-up to our first film called the union, the business behind getting high, which was actually did very well in Australia. Australia is one of the few places we got an industry. We got. And a deal in the UK, and actually, Eagle Entertainment distributed the Culture Eye too, because both films had done so good down there. Um, but we really, after the union, we really wanted to try to look at that international side of, you know, how different countries viewed it so differently, so that it could have a global appeal. Because although different countries handled certain cannabis laws differently, there are overall aspects that you could totally see were pushed by the war on drugs in the United States. That as much as countries like I always compare, like. Australia is very similar to Canada and that you're like small population, right? That you're, you're own, you're part of the Commonwealth. Like mm. we, we are, but as much as we try to be independent, we're so dependent on the United States and yeah. their culture the way that they do things. Right. You guys get a little bit more cause you're like way at the bottom of the yeah. planet, your own content. Like where's Canada? We're like, everybody's like, you guys are the top hat to the United States. And we're like, we're very different, right? Although <laughs> we're simple, very different, but we are heavily influenced. And when you look at the, both the culture high and, the union, you see that for international drug policy, it was easy for them to get, a, a, you know, everybody on board, all the other countries, because they would just impose trade embargoes and stuff like that, right? If you did not adapt their drug policy. So most countries were like, you know, and they were hoodwinked back then easily too. They're like, well, it, it's, you know, it'll make your brain dead and kills your kids and gateway drug. Like, why would we support this anyway? So let's get rid of it and support the States and keep, you know, trade going good. So yeah. it, uh, it, 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 when you dive into those things as we did in both films, it was fascinating to learn how essentially like Harry Anslinger and a few guys in the DEA, you know, really hoodwinked the world and convinced them to adopt their the American drug policies internationally. Yeah. And, um, and we'll, we'll touch on the, the culture high in a second, but I wanted to, um, 
go into as well? Because I, I saw in an interview you said that you went to acting school and and film yep. school, and and so what was it that drew you to um, producing and, and going into that side of things behind the camera um, rather than exploring acting or or th- that type of industry? Well, two things. One, I wasn't a very talented actor, if I'm being honest with myself. Like when you like, sure, I could have got bit part and I was I was getting bit parts on soap operas and I was in music videos and doing all that kind of stuff but you would see some actors in New York that like could sing and tap dance and do classic and like you know do accents and impressions I'm like I can't do any of that right so really I wasn't as talented as many other I worked hard at it and then you know and hard work always does pay off I was getting things and then producing just came more naturally for me I I you know I lost my biological father really young I inherited a nightmare of a business in a strip club and had to deal with motorcycle clubs and all that kind of politics and drugs and you know and and dancers and so learning how to put out fires because when my dad died at 23 he wasn't or I was 23 and my dad died at 47 and I had to take over this nightmare of an estate and it wasn't put together clean. So I really just learned how to manage problems and put them on. That's essentially what a producer does, right? Is that I can't in the middle of production be like, oh, we're fucked. Things aren't working. We have to like, no, you have to be like, okay, talent's pissed off or this has happened or your camera's broken. Like you have to be like, what's the solution? Let's overcome it, not just say we're fucked. So I think think it kind of came naturally to me out of it with my head above water. Right. And what was it about documentaries that, you know, like what was it about the documentary form that you thought would be good to kind of go down there instead of doing feature films? Uh, well, at the time uh, when we started the union, because like I would have started doing research, that would have been like 2004. That's really when documentaries were becoming mainstream or I noticed them becoming mainstream. Like that's when Super Size Me was a huge mm. hit. and. Bowling for Columbine, like you started seeing documentaries in the theater, right? Which I'd never seen before, like, you know, other than IMAX stuff, right? You'd never seen like documentaries. So, and I remember coming back being like, oh, that seems attainable because you didn't have to deal with unions and actors and managers and have to have like, and again, with the union, I had content, I grew up around that. I had friends that had been growing for years and I grew up around the MC. Uh, or the motorcycle club culture here in in Canada. So I knew a lot about how it operated here in Canada. Clearly not as much as we discovered when we made the film, but uh, it was kind of that. I just was fascinated at the way Super Size Me did it. And I was like, I could do something like that, but about the marijuana industry. So I decided to go down that route and then became extremely passionate about it. Now documentaries have been kind of the thing where I think nowadays people almost... I always hear this from most people. They're like, man, I watch documentaries more than ever because I think in a world where the media has got political influence and be can quote fake news and, you know, TV shows are like, you know, scripted and biased and they're trying to be politically correct that when you just watch a documentary and it's just about a great story, like people are connecting with that more and more. So for me, I just found after we'd done our first films that just there was such less ego it was just about telling the greatest story and going on a journey yourself like we always have an idea of what the documentary is and like we propose it to get financing but you never know exactly how the arcs are going to fold because you start discovering as you go along and you interview people that really change your perspective on the world right i think podcasts and joe rogan kind of started this right but it was 
there are so many interviews where after sitting down with one of these intellectuals for two hours, like I looked at the world differently because they would present things that I'd never looked at. And I fell in love at that point, which it's probably, probably be better to get into the scripted stuff. You make a hell of a lot more (laughs) documentary filmmakers are not, we're not, we're not killing it driving Ferraris, <laughs> right? We're, we're, we, we love what we do and we get to travel the world and tell really incredible stories. But even a documentary that absolutely knocks it out of the park, it, like as far as financials is small potatoes to like an independent film. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I was going to say. It's kind of going into that documentary industry. Um, you would come out of acting school and, and you hadn't, you know, done much. Um, yeah. How, how, hard was that and how hard was that struggle to find people to interview for the documentary or to find funding for your first film that's a that's a great question it was impossible at first like everybody was saying no for our first film like you gotta remember this is before like in the states there was like one state i think at the time that was legal for medicinal purposes it was federally illegal like everywhere other than amsterdam it was tolerated so when a couple indie guys in a basement suite in vancouver like oh we'd really like you about cannabis for a documentary but he was like god like not doing that like free get out of here like it was really hard but then you know you'd get a win and after you'd get that great interview then you use that for the other interview and say hey we just interviewed so and so and they recommended you and then they'd be like okay and then that kind of trickle effect. And I think it really, we were really the first true, just like filmmakers that were trying to tell a great story about cannabis. We weren't activists trying to push a message. We were just filmmakers wanting to make a great film. And then it got out in the cannabis community. And that's how we got Joe Rogan through like Todd McCormick and stuff like, like most of our interview list said no, but then we would get a win. We'd get a win there. And, you know, these things would start to come together. So I've often said that, you know, the story of trying to make the union would have probably been more interesting than the union itself. But uh, it's it's part of those challenges you you find now, now that we're accredited and we're getting, you know, financing and we're doing documentaries all the time. I wouldn't say it's any easier, like we get financing easier, but you have challenges with every documentary now. So those are just it was kind of great to have one so challenging to start because now all of them seem pretty easy where it's like, Hey, we can actually get paid now. And most people respond to us right away. Even if it's a no, they'll be like, Hey, just schedule doesn't work. Where like when we were doing the first one, it was like, nobody would respond to us. Like, are you serious? You want to interview us about weed? Like, no, we're not stop, go away. Right. Like, so, you know, but those are, I think those, if you can look at, if you have the right mindset and you can look at those the right way, I look at those now as like, those were golden nuggets that trained us. Those were great things to have to overcome to prepare us to be able to do what we do now. Um, but it was impossible at first. Like, I mean, I narrow it down this way that when we started the union, uh, my daughter wasn't even born. And by the time it was actually finished and releasing into film festivals, she was two and a half. So <laughs> my daughter wasn't even thought of, I should say. And then she was two and a half when it was releasing. So, and we were planning to have this thing done in like six months and get festivals, win some awards, move on to act. <laughs> like that. I, this is my idea of how I was going to do it. It's like, oh, well, cool. As an actor, it'll show that I've got producer skills. And we'll get this done and be the side thing. And, oh, yeah. That, that was like, I look back now and be like, what an idiot. You thought you were just going to bang this out in six months, win big festivals and move on? No, doesn't work that way. Did, <laughs> did all that like, um, you know, it, you said how you thought it was going to take you six months and you're going to win all these awards, but then, you know, to end up taking you like four years or so or just like a, a lot, of, lot more time. Did that kind of knock around your self-confidence or self-belief in in following the path of um, working in uh, film? 100%. 
And it, it, it questioned everyone around us. Like, you know, everyone other than the director and our main editor, Stephen, like, you know, even family, friends and close friends started to think we were a little crazy. They're like, God, I'm like, you know, like, what is this thing you've been working on so long? Like, you know, time to get a real job, man. Quit chasing. Like, like I, I, I probably bet, like, other than my close, close friends that I'm still like family with, like, I'm sure most people thought I was crazy. And I don't know how my stepdad supported me through it because I kept having to like, we went way over budget and I have to keep boring money and putting in my own money and really thought we were on to something special. And and I'm sure there's thousands of stories of like this, where people did this and nothing came of it. So, you know, we were very fortunate that it turned out the way it did, but I I think constantly, like I, I would be lying if I wasn't challenged probably monthly at the time, like, you know, especially once my daughter was born and I'm broke and any extra money I have, I keep putting into this thing. And everybody's like, when's it going to be done? How much more money do you need? And I didn't know. I'd never delivered a film before. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how much more we need. I don't know exactly when it's going to be done. Every time we think we're done, then we go for a legal clearance and then it, it can't pass and it has to go again and we have to change it. And so many times, you know, I started to think I was a complete loser and be like, man, I invested all this money and what an idiot. I could have bought property. I could have done all these things that would have been far more lucrative. Um, and even to this day, the union never made money. It's the only value is to show that, you know, it was kind of like going to film school or getting your degree is like, this is okay. You were able to overcome this. you got a commercial release. It was picked up by phase four films. It was on iTunes. It was on Netflix. It was on all those different platforms. That's the only value it really had. It really, it still is like, I think $150,000 in the hole. So it, it didn't make money. And yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people, our team could have just dwelled on that and be like, we're failures. But what we did do is use that to showcase that we did, because it did win festivals. It did get critical acclaim. It was like a, you know, as far as release and getting out, it was seen by millions. It was released in the time when the internet was just getting traction on social media and social media was the wild west and the algorithms didn't hoodwink you and take you down certain rabbit holes. Like, and it, 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 it released. I remember the first day we released the trailer on YouTube, it had like 70,000 views. And within two days it had half a million. And we we're like, Holy shit. Like this thing is connecting with audiences around the world. And then even before we had a distribution deal, I remember people were like, dude, I know this isn't the best news, but you're like the number one download on Pirate Bay right now. Like, and I was like, which was cool, but not cool. <laughs> no money on Pirate Bay, right? So I was like, so many times we were questioned and started to, you know, to go back to your question there. I know I can go on tangents here, but many times, man, I, I felt that I was a loser and that I wasted all this money and my dad believed in me and, and all this stuff. But we constantly had to overcome that and find positive ways. I mean, I think, I think the only reason why we didn't quit is we'd gotten so deep that I had no other way I was going to be able to pay my family back than to make this thing a success. Like it was like, like that line from Eminem song, like failure's not an option. Like it was not an option. So I was like, how the hell am I ever going to pay my family back if this doesn't get a release? And so thankfully we were able to mitigate like 80% of it, but it took like 10 years after release to finally pay down all the investors and stuff. But it's a big risk that overall did pay off because it did give us a resume to be able to stay in the film industry. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's such a, at the time I could imagine be such a controversial topic. Um, so what was it about it that drew you in so much that you, you kind of weren't afraid to take that risk. And like you said, you didn't make much money on it and, and it was massive. It, it could be deemed a massive failure by some standards. What was it about the story that said, you know what, despite what people say, despite if we lose money on this, this story needs to get out there. What was it that drew you to that? 
It's a good question. I think honestly, we just because, and I think that's why the union kind of connected with people around the world, right? And why the world literally demanded us to do the culture. Eye. We received thousands of emails saying, you have to do a follow-up. You got to talk about policies down here. I think just that, I think that was like, we'd receive these messages about how the union helped, you know, parents apologize to a kid and how it was changing people's opinions and I think those on those down days is what helped us to get through is that like, we're like, wow, we are affecting people. Um, that and like, I'm pretty stubborn. I don't like to lose. So I think it was a combination of that if I'm being completely honest too. Like the message was important, but I was just like, man, I can't, I can't let my family and my team, my director and everybody that works so hard. I was like, man, they're expecting things. Like I, there's a lot of pressure from that. And obviously the story and the subject matter was cool. We knew we had something special because it was illegally being downloaded and we were receiving thousands of messages from all over the world that was connecting with people. We just needed to be able to show a distributor that. And we do, we have this ongoing joke with phase four films about that because they took it and they gave us no money up front. They said, no, we're not taking this a risky subject matter. It's a documentary. <laughs> we are going to give you no money, but we'll give you a 65, 35 split on the back. And hopefully you can prove us wrong. And I remember we were asking, this is back when physical DVDs were still around. I, I think they might still be around in Australia a little bit, right? We don't have no, like in Canada there. Are they the gone? Last, the last DVD store that I saw was like six years ago. I haven't <laughs> seen one since. It's pretty okay, rare. So, so, yeah. Okay, so about the same as here. So that's, so I, but I remember we were saying, what would be a grand slam for you guys? And they're like, oh, if we could sell 10,000 units in the first year, that'd be amazing. That'd be a slam dunk. We sold 25,000 units in the first quarter. Jeez. So they were like, holy shit, this thing's actually like making us money. So that helped our distributor. They were willing to invest in the second one and do well. And again, the distributor made money. We were able to pay back most of the investors after 10 years. But, you know, thank God the investors were family and it wasn't like a bank charging us like 30% interest or something, right? Otherwise, we'd never be out of the hole. But um yeah, I know the, the the short answer to the question is like, I, I I don't know if it would be just one thing that made us persevere over that. Like we definitely, but I think a lot of those messages from around the world and the way the internet was then that really pushed us through those times when we were, we knew the message was special because it was affecting people and they took the time to write us. Just sad because in today's world, people don't do that. People are so quick now. If it's not a comment on social media, it's like, we get way less emails now that we have way more work than like the union at the time. It seemed like it seemed it was so fresh for the internet. Too. Like it was lucky too. Like if we were to release the same type of like, I think informational film, but like even better quality and HD or whatever else, I don't think it would connect with audiences around the world the way the union did. The internet was kind of the wild west with algorithms at that point. No big businesses were in. It could just organically reach people. And it did. Whereas now we notice that even when the culture and, and the algorithms are nearly as sophisticated as they are now, we're like, you just can't reach like you, it's they kind of guide you with what you already watch. All right. And now let's take a break from our interview and uh, talk about if anyone out there wants to start a podcast or has any interest in something or any fandom. I was a massive movie fan. I loved uh, talking about film and I loved the way that it can impact the world. And, and I started a podcast on it and it's really just made my love for film even bigger. And so if anyone does want to start a podcast, I really recommend it. And if you do, you should really sign up with Buzzsprout because they're amazing. They give you your own website. They have an audio system that allows you to make it sound like you're recording within a studio, even if you're not. 
which is really good for when you're in lockdown situations like now, you can put up a recording and it will sound like you've been in a studio, even though you're in your own lounge room. So yeah, I seriously recommend Buzzsprout. And if you guys do want to sign up with Buzzsprout, we have a link down below in the show notes. Uh, Click on that. You'll be able to sign right up and also receive a $25 Amazon gift card. So without further ado, let's head back into the interview now. Thanks for listening. Yeah, right. And watching the film, like it covers, it covers such a, like such a, it's like this really broad subject. Like I've never thought that like marijuana could be, well, I never really broke it down in such a way like the film does that it, it has roots in um, like the medical profession, but also you break it down in this like a linguistic point, like, like the concept itself, war on drugs. Like what was the level of research that you guys had to do on the film? Because it's such a big topic, really. Like where did you start? Well, we start like most people do on like the internet, right? But then once you start getting some of these great interviews, like when I just said earlier, like you would do a certain interview that would literally the way you look at the world, right? Like some of these great addiction specialists or former law enforcement that had worked it for years and saw that they were doing far more damage to society than they were helping by incriminating people and giving them a criminal record for something that is far less harmful, you know, than physical assault or or child abuse, or all these other things that people are serving less time in the United States for that it just kept compounding. We just kept being like, wow, this has so many roots. And it's interesting kind of seeing how society's going now and everything is questioned now. And when we did the, when we did these films, I remember a lot of people afterward be like, man, they're like, I didn't just learn about marijuana. They're like, I learned about how the media operates and how I'm swindled to sides and how we're divided. I think both films, both the union and the culture high could have been some of the first ones that really kind of hit the internet and made people look at things differently. But the research took years. Like that's why they took like, even the culture high when we'd done it before and we we're going through it, like, you know, that I think it took two and a half years by the time we were done. It, it, it It's so much. Cause after you do a great interview, then you have to research what they say. You can't just take it verbatim. Like, Oh, this person said this, so this must be how it is. You gotta no. Then you have to dive in and, you have to look outside the internet too and actually go to those old things called libraries and try to get some old medical records that might not be on file because a lot of this stuff was before it was pre-internet. So not a lot of people had uploaded it at the time. So it took an immense amount of research. That's why kind of nice now where we're kind of getting into like sports and, and biography docs where it's a little less research, right? And it's just about honoring their story correctly, not trying to make sure that we're so accurate that if somebody Google checks us that like, you know, we're as accurate as can be, right? Like it's, it, it's more, um, you know, it, it, it does those, I, I, you know, I haven't done a, a like kind of what I call a call to arms doc since the union and the culture. Those are kind of the, the last ones we've done because the research is so intense. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And I think, I think that shows though, in the film, um, when I was watching it, I was thinking this, it it captures so greatly, not just about marijuana, but just about politics and social, uh, social issues and how society works and the media, like you said, because, you know, I've grown up, um, we've both grown up with parents working in the media. And so like, ever since I was a kid, you know, they've said, you know, you can't trust what they say about this and you have to think about it this way. You know, even if a, a journalist says this, think about why they're saying that and, and, you know, on the flip side. And so some people don't understand that, but to me, like this film, um, it shows people so perfectly how to, to question media in certain aspects. Cause there are times where they don't know the facts and they just come out and, and like you see some people in there saying, you know, 
marijuana will just, it, it'll do this to people. And it's like, well, this Harvard professor says no, and he's put his whole life's work into it. So how could you say that? And so that, I think um, the research you did really, really came through in the film. And it's not just about marijuana. You can really tell it's a film about um, society, really. Thank you. No, it's, it's, it's amazing how many of these are like, even to this day, it would be well bump into someone in places you'd never expect. And like, you know, now the cannabis is legal here in Canada. Like, you, you know, you'll go into a cannabis store and someone will be like, dude, they'll be like, you kind of look familiar. And I won't say anything. They'll kind of keep looking. They'll be like, you're the union guy, right? <laughs> you look way different. I'm like, yeah, I was 25 then. I'm 40 now. Right. So yeah, I look a little different. And then they're like, dude, that's why I opened this cannabis store. And that's why I got into cannabis. Your movie inspired me and had me look at things completely different way back in 2007. You know, and I wrote letters to the government and, you know, both films were invited to our Parliament Hill in Canada and were played a small part in, in cannabis being legal. You know, and that, that to me, I still scratch my head that this guy that barely graduated high school was always in trouble, had teachers saying that. I was borderline an idiot in high school because I didn't know how to focus or follow, you know, a certain way of teaching that, you know, we've influenced Canadian policy to the point where it's now federally legal in Canada. And, and guess what? Almost everything that both films have said were true because the sky hasn't fallen. Rapes and murders haven't gone through the roof and all the horror stories that they said would happen. No, it's managing like, sure, there are problems with it and there's abuse issues and everything, just like everything else in society. But as we kind of thought, based on the research back in the day, there's a much bigger problem with opiates and pharmaceuticals that are coming out than there ever is with cannabis. So uh, is it a problem like anything in moderation? If you abuse it, you can get into trouble with it. But if you handle it like alcohol or, you know, even bad diet and physical inactivity, it's probably not going to damage your life too much. And it's much better to have it regulated and controlled and in a place where we can keep it, you know, in a controlled environment versus the way I grew up. Like, my kids all go to school now and they don't know much about cannabis. When I was in high school, we had a smoke pit, which I still don't understand how we ever allowed that, where schools <laughs> would allow kids to smoke cigarettes just off school in a designated smoking area, even though the age for smoking cigarettes in where I grew up in British Columbia was 19 and nobody in high school is 19 unless they failed like two years and they were allowed to smoke cigarettes and everybody would just smoke cannabis in there too. When like my daughter goes to like an academy where everybody plays sports and she's like, she thinks it's crazy that there's like a few kids that vape. She's like, oh my God, dad, there's a few kids that vape tobacco. I'm like, shit, if that's all your seniors are doing, mine were doing a lot worse when I was in high school. <laughs> I think with the film, like, I think like an important thing that I learned from it is that, well, they say in the film that, you know, mar well, you always hear that marijuana is this gateway drug, but it's just like, it's a, to me, I found that through watching the film, it's more of a gateway to like injustice. So what was the most alarming thing that you found in the research when you were making the movie? For me, he always was like interviewing the law enforcement that had guilty consciences about the damage they had done, where they're like, you know, here I am kicking in a dorm room kid's door because we'd done a sting to buy them for like a couple joints or an eighth of marijuana. Meanwhile, this kid is in an Ivy league school or a university or doing well. And he was smoking weed and studying or smoking weed. And a few of them are hanging out. They're like, now I'm going to give them a criminal record, which will like, as the film says, well, you can, you can escape a lot of other things. You can't escape a criminal record that will haunt you for the rest of your life. Unless you get a pardon like 10, 15 years down the road, right. That someone can have all that damage done to them for something that, you know, 
let's be honest, almost every probably world leader has done the same. They just didn't get caught. Right. And that you saw people were serving more time for minor drug offenses in the United States than really heinous crimes like abuse, molestation, assault. That to me was like, what in what world is molesting a kid less damaging to anyone than someone voluntarily wanting to alter their conscience with a substance that they chose to consume. That just, to me, I remember I, I, I and even the most starch conservative, you would talk to them and they were like, well, that's where, yeah, I kind of see your point. They're like, but the law is the law. And I was like, I get when you, when we want to say the law is the law, but you know, to me, I just think the justice system and the court systems is much better spent spending it on serious crimes versus somebody that's in the safety of their own home, not driving a vehicle, not doing anything, wanting to alter their consciousness. Because con- your consciousness is really the only sovereign thing that you own, really. Like that if you can transport it to every country and you own it, that's yours. If you're not hurting anybody else, which we already have laws in place for, we shouldn't be criminalizing people for that. That to me was Remember, that's what made me look at the world where I'm like, wait a minute. So someone can do the most heinous thing to a child and they're getting like four years and someone that had simple possession is getting five to 10 years and probation for 15 years. I'm like, well, how, in what world does that make sense? Right. But that's where you saw the money that is influenced in drug policy because it's the easiest one to convict, to convict a child molester or somebody that's tough. You need like witnesses, photo evidence, DNA. It's hard to convict them. You have to have a lot of evidence. With drug possession, easy, right? Especially if you're a minority, right? Mm-hmm. See you in the corner, like, oh, you look suspicious. I think I smell marijuana. Even if no one was smoking, there is no smell. Hard to argue that they don't. Copy like, oh, I smell it. Going to search you. Oh, you have a joint on you? Bang, done. Like cops, we have that one in the culture. Right? Ed Burns saying one arrest is one arrest. When we mm-hmm. would get paid for you don't get more money for getting the drug dealer or the murderer. When we have to make our arrest, we get quotas on who we arrest and who we find, not what severity of crime they did. So the easiest one is simple possession. You go to certain parts of town where you know people and you know people don't have the money to get a lawyer to defend themselves. Boom. Got your arrest. Got it. You're done. Right. Yeah. Where you try, to, you try to go after white collar crime. You try to go after like like lifelong criminals that have money backing they're going to throw your court gate. You make one mistake and that shit will get thrown out of court. They'll be like, oh, you didn't knock on the door before you came in with your warrant. Boom. Out. Even though they found like drugs, guns, ammunition, like it's, it's all you, you legal siege and see, season, uh, search and seizure. Boom. Out the window. That too. And I was like, wow, you really see how the justice system and legal system is corrupted by money. Like you have lots of money. I mean, look, O.J. Simpson got away with killing his wife. That was like plain as day, right? And he was thrown out because he had the money to. That's that's unfortunately in interviewing the ex-law enforcement and FBI and DEA agents and all these guys that were like, we saw the damage we did was far more damaging. That was the one that they probably made more headway than anyone is leap law enforcement against prohibition because it's hard to argue people that were just like, no, I've seen it firsthand. I was the one arresting those students and I have a guilty conscience because they were in school. They got themselves in a university. They're smart kids. We ruined their lives because they made one wrong personal choice. And who hasn't made a wrong personal choice? Right. And he's like, and then we would see. And then even the way they talk about the drug wars were like, they'd work really hard to get rid of one drug syndicate. And they're like, that wouldn't do anything. We'd get rid of them. And then the new guys would come in and they'd be worse because they wanted to set a precedence that we're now the new one. They're like, this never ends. They're like, we get rid of one bad crew. And they're like, we want the old crew back. We don't want these guys in. They're more violent. They're worse. Like, let's get our Italians back or whatever crew they kicked out. Mm. 
those were the ones that shook me to my core where I was like, wow, we need to fundamentally look at this differently. And that's where the director really started looking at a war on anything. Like how can you have a war on something that isn't really there? Right. Is that, and the phrases and the hook lines that they get people into those were the interviews that fundamentally changed the way that we all looked at the world where we're like, wow, we were discovering as we were going. And I think that's why both films turned out so well is we didn't have a point of view or an agenda we wanted to deliver. We truly just wanted to interview these people, find out what they wanted to share and present it in an entertaining way. And I think yeah. that's why the film has gone on to connect with so many people because we were not pushing like a Democrat or Republican side or whatever the conservatives are. We were just saying, this is crazy. Like, how do you not look at this and look at it differently? And didn't matter what side of the political spectrum you'd look at our films you'd have people from the conservative side or the more liberal side, everyone would come out thinking about things being like, I never looked at it that way before. I never thought about that before. I never thought about this before. That's what a great documentary should do. You should come out of it, not knowing the answer, but making you think about things and what you're seeing around you differently. If it has you thinking, even if it has you going, I want to prove those stats wrong. And I think that's bullshit. Good. At least at that point, we've got you thinking about it after yeah. the theater and you get your own conclusion. That's what a great documentary should do. Yeah, for sure. And it even changed like something like I, I've never had a problem with marijuana, but there was um one uh, little thing that I thought was like a fact because I had been told it and I was like, oh, OK, I can understand that um, people say that it can um, bring on certain um, uh, like, schizophrenia and things like that. I'm like, I'm sure that's very rare, but I guess it's true because people say it. And then you really, and then in the documentary, you have people coming out just going, no, because schizophrenia has stayed like this, where marijuana yeah. use has gone like that. And if marijuana use has gone up, schizophrenia uh, should have gone up as well. And it hasn't. And that's a testament to all the interviews that you got. And it like, it completely changed my mind on the topic as well. And it was amazing. Um, one question I had about uh, the interviews was, how did you get those interviews? Was Were you able to leverage how well your first film did or was it just a lot of hustle and just trying to get emails through to get to people like Wiz Khalifa and Joe Rogan? Yeah, so definitely with the success of the first film, it was crazy when we did the Kickstarter campaign to raise money for the Culture High. It was like all these people started reaching out to us being like, I started like, uh, so our good friend Jason Reed, that was an associate producer, he started... Um, law enforcement against prohibition UK. And he's the only member that is an ex law enforcement because he had been inspired by the union several years before. So he had contact with all the UK police and all those investigators and all those people. And he was like, Adam, your movie inspired me to start this chapter. Like, let me open my Rolodex. And we had all these people being like, that's where you really saw the impact globally. Like it really did shift consciousness around the world. Our first film, like it's pretty amazing when you see, how many people had influenced and then it just like people be like oh these are the guys that did the union like yeah i got into drug policy because of that film so like of course i'll interview or we know so like the second one was much easier and then when again this is when algorithms were different and before crowdfunding was a term and you could just release it on facebook and it could go viral you didn't have to pay for ads or hire a crowdfunding consultant or do any of that like it truly hit the zeitgeist where our executive producer, Bianca Barnhill, she was like, Adam, I can't look up any cannabis site right now without people talking about the follow-up film to the union, the culture high. I am good friends with Wiz Khalifa and Joe Rogan and be real. Let me see if we can get them right. And 
She's like, I'll reach out to all of them. They all know the union and they all would be down. So she was the one that like, like we had all these people saying, man, we all know the first film. Let's make this one even better. And like, that's how we got Richard Branson and all these people were now pushing drug policy for themselves and wanting different results. And so it, it was much easier the second time. Right. But it was also challenging because we knew we had this cult classic and it was like, man, like, when have you ever seen a follow-up to a cult classic? Be good too. People were like, it was okay, but it wasn't quite there. <laughs> like, so although it was easier to get interviews and stuff, it was more challenging on now. Cause now we also had a whole bunch of people watching us. And I remember some of our, our Kickstarter campaign guys were really mad that we were interviewing some of these people. They were like, why are you, why are you interviewing Wiz Khalifa? I thought this was going to be intelligent people, not some rap artist stuff for like, Man, because we're still talking about culture. It's good to have icon, icons talking about the shift in culture, what they experienced. But it was, we were like, wow, we can't win. Like, we're getting attacked even by our fans that gave us money on Kickstarter. They're mad if we were getting like, so um, that's how it happened is that it was much easier to get talent to, to confirm with us, but it brought its own challenges. And it's pretty amazing, actually. I, I have to give kudos to our director, Brett Harvey, that, you know, to do a follow-up to a cult classic like that and have it significantly rated higher in IMDb and with the reviewers to follow up even stronger is why I think Brett's one of the most talented directors I've ever worked with. I'm very picky about what he does and he only does one project at a time, which can kind of be to his own detriment at times because he, he puts his whole world into it. That's all he does. So uh, it's, uh, it's kind of cool reminiscing with this. You guys to kind of go over it because sometimes I'm so busy about the kids and trying to do the next thing that I, Sometimes you forget what we were able to accomplish with those films because they they both were successes in their own right. Neither of them were like, oh, we're making so much money, like life's easy now. Like, but they were stepping stones to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And it's kind of good to go over this and kind of remind ourselves of just what we were able to accomplish with both films. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it was truly amazing. But um I guess moving on from there, you you've done so many documentaries um, since, and and have you learned a lot from those first two? And and how's it changed? I guess um, seeking funding and, and seeking interviews, and and I guess that backing. Like I saw uh, for the Danny Trejo film, you've got Universal, and they and they were a part of it. Like, how much has that changed, and how much easier is it now to put out quality documentaries um, as opposed to when you first started? It's a great question. And it's, it's got like, you know, kind of like I touched on it. It's easier in some ways and harder in other ways. Like, you know, when you're dealing with someone's biography story and you're dealing with a, you know, an incredible stories like Danny and such an amazing human being, you hear the pressure is almost harder. It's like, man, we better not fuck this up because like, this is like, you know, when, when we don't have to deal with agents and managers and we're just telling, and we're trying to be as factual and doing the research, everything's on us. Well, now everything's not only on us. You have managers trying to say, well, I don't like how you're doing this or I don't like. So, you know, each project funding was definitely easier to get uh, to get as the projects grew. Right. But then funding is good. Yeah. Then it also where you better not make a mistake. Otherwise, you ain't going to be able to get funding again. Right. So. Um, it certainly is easier to get funding now. And we definitely have more and more people we can go to. And there's been people that have worked with us ever since the first film. So when I reach out to them now, they're like, absolutely. And they'll respond right away. But every project, you know, me and my team, we don't dive into a project unless we truly love the subject matter, which I think has been our, our, that's our key to our success, no matter what the budget is or who buys it or, 
if we're not passionate about it, we're fortunate we haven't had to do any documentary job just like, oh, we need something to pay the bills. We'll just do this shitty story that we don't care about, right? Because docs, all of them, whether it's a bio doc or whether it's a called arms doc or climate awareness doc or whatever, we, you know, you are going to dive a lot of time. Like it's a minimum two years from like raising the funds to producing it, to editing it, to delivering it, to releasing it is usually 18 to 24 months, no matter how you slice it. So you're going to be diving a lot of time in there. You're not making a, you know, you're making a wage that you can support your family, but you're not making a killing for how much time you put in. So if you're not passionate about the subject matter, we don't do it. So it's easier to get financing, but I think as we're constantly trying to set new bars for ourselves, I think the challenge of what we deliver is equally as challenging on each one. I think it's still, we're, we're nervous before everyone. Like we know how to get cameras and teams and creatives and financing and do all that now. But then, you know, when we sign somebody new, we're like, oh, we like, they're expecting us to get a universal deal and crush it. And <laughs> we're the best. So we better be right. So it's, it, uh, I don't think it's got any easier on that side, but certainly to get funding, we now understand it and don't lose money like we did on the first one. So I guess that's progress. <laughs> and, and with the, with the Danny Trejo movie, like we, his face is so like, we see him all the time in heaps of movies, but we de- we never really knew the guy. Um, so what, how did you get involved with his story and how did you learn about like, yeah, how did you learn about his story and what made you want to um, pursue documenting it? So Danny, we met him, a friend of mine, Rocky, was working on an independent film, which was originally called Juarez 2045, and now it's turned into Cartel 2045. Um, and Danny was on set, and such a cool guy, and same as you guys. I'd recognize him from a million movies, Dustled On, He, This, That, you know, uh, Desperado, but I didn't know much about him. And he was a really funny, charismatic guy. And then my buddy Rocky, my producing partner, said, like, Adam, we should do a doc on Danny. And I was kind of like, man. To be honest, I was kind of like, what, like a character actor? Like, what, what's, like I don't get any dude. You should, you should see his story. It's incredible. Then we started looking, like, you know, was facing execution in prison and was addicted to heroin and turned into this like amazing role model and speaks to prisoners and people in LA to this in in, in uh, um, AA to this day and has been sober for fifty years. I was like dude, if we scripted this movie, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. Nobody can go from facing execution to being one of the most successful Mexican-American actors in Hollywood history. Ridiculous. <laughs> but it's his story. Uh, and it moved us. And then seeing Danny and how cool and, and, and charismatic and willing to share he was, we were like, we were all over it. And then we took it to market and it, it got picked up pretty quick. A lot of people wanted to tell his story. And then, yeah, and then that, that was the first studio deal we'd ever got. We landed Universal. I remember even our team's like, wait, universal proper is this like a universal you know universal like some junior company or some company that just has the universal name in it no (laughs) we're like no no like universal proper right like damn like even danny's team was like impressed his agent's like really like universal studios yep that's the logo on the check it out right they're like (laughs) was it ever yeah it was uh that's what got us into doing was there ever a push to kind of, because I know you like you you work on documentaries, but was there ever a push to kind of make it into a, a feature film or anything like that? Because his life is very interesting and would make for a great movie. So was there ever a push to kind of make a feature film about him? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they're working on it because they just did his bio too, but we got those life rights. That was life rights that his agent was not willing to give to us. Okay. So she was like, no way. Like, especially he's at a perfect age. He's 
six, like, you know, a couple of years will be a time, especially now with Hollywood changing where, you know, you can have your heroes and leading men, um, you know, being like a Mexican uh, American, like himself, like it'd be, I wouldn't be surprised for the next three or four years, somebody does like a dramatic feature on him. But yeah, that's what I like about docs is no matter how good that actor is that portrays him, there's only one Danny Trejo. We told his yeah. real story. So best <laughs> people want to do the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually so true. And and the the documentary covers so much like just crazy stories like you said he went from facing execution to um being addicted to heroin from the age of 12 and were there any stories that he told that um maybe didn't make it into the documentary and if you're able to share them are you able to? Oh yeah yeah so there's one that he has a couple of daddy shares them all the time so it would be <laughs> there's some that didn't fit just because like they the overall story like they're great stories but when he would talk about his uncle Gilbert like who inspired him right and and if you remember in the film like Danny grew up with his mom originally and then he moved in with his his dad's brothers and it was a totally different culture and he talked about a story about seeing the power and respect that his uncle Gilbert came in when he had the money and he had the cash and he, and he comes in and he talked about, um, you know, uh, a lot of robberies and stuff that we weren't able to fit in there. Right. Where he'd be like, he'd be like, Oh yeah, I went into this. But I'm trying to think of the, the main one that he didn't, he, he talked about how like the first time his uncle threw him a whole bunch of cash and he was just like, Oh my God. And, He's like, I was flirting with this girl on the street. She paid no attention to me. He's like, my uncle Gilbert threw me a whole bunch of cash. He's like, and she paid attention to me right away after that. Right. <laughs> like he is. Um, <laughs> he's like, so he's like, as a young, I realized real quick, looking good, dressing good, having respect and having money brought everything that it seemed like as an, you know, as a, as a local Latino, like that seemed like Ed, that's all you wanted back then. Right. Was those things. And my uncle had that I'm trying to think of like, a, I mean, he had a ton of prison stories, but they're all in the film, like the shanking he talks about, talks about, I mean, he, the one thing he kind of didn't go into too much details, how he said, I remember this part, he talked about how in prison, like it's crazy how violent it is, but also how organized it is. Cause he said, you don't have two badasses fight each other because if I'm a badass and you're a badass, we could fight for two minutes and that's a long time in prison. And you could get additional time on your sentence and all these other things. He's like, so he's like, it was just stabbings because they were quick, right? Like you be in line and bang, bang, you get stabbed and you're done. And the, the blades down the drain and out of like, so I remember when I'm talking just about how frequent those were. And he's like, Oh yeah, we'd have to go get this guy and get that guy. And I was like, would you guys go? He's like, oh yeah, all the time. And I was like, that's a life I know that. And what was it like getting the like the interviews for this movie? Because you have like um yeah, so many interviews from different people and different actors and stuff. Was it a lot easier to get them to talk about like Danny Trejo as opposed to the culture high? Yeah, it was definitely because they love Danny. An interesting thing about Danny is everyone we interviewed felt that he was their best friend. They all love him that much. We're like, Danny's my best friend. Danny's my best friend. Danny, we're like, holy shit, he has a lot of best friends. I have like three, right? This guy <laughs> has like, but that's the way he <clears throat> makes you feel, right? He, he really makes you feel that way. He makes you feel special. So it was really interesting to, to work in that aspect and have, you know, be, be able to do that. 
you know, with the interviews coming easier and, you know, but still there's challenges. Like we're interviewing like Michelle Rodriguez and stuff. It's like, who's cool as shit, by the way, but just busy, right? She was working on Fast Furious and you had to figure out their schedules and they're doing free interviews for you. We never pay people for interviews, even in the culture and stuff, we never pay. So you're always dealing with schedule conflicts. And so people are more willing to interview for Danny, but then you're always figuring out schedules and you're keeping their agents happy and you're trying to go around the agents because usually agents are just a stall to progress. And if you can get to the talent, the talent's like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> right. But if you go through an agent, the agent's always like, oh, how much money are you paying me? How much is this? <laughs> So you're always trying to go around the, but not insult the agents. And like, yeah, agents to me is normally my term for them as a stall to progress. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like you said, you know, you talked to Michelle Rodriguez and I never thought of how much of a cultural impact he actually had in, um, in American cinema of, for, for the Latin people and for Mexican Americans who, who really didn't have that face on camera. And for her to talk about him in that way, and you can really tell that she just admires the the trailblazer that he was for all of them. Because before them, like, I guess there wasn't really like that face that you could see in camera and be like, that's a Mexican movie star. So yeah, that's surprising. At his, at his age is unheard of. Like in the sixties, that doesn't happen. You don't become yeah. an action. Like, does not, I, those are things we discovered too. Those are the parts that are the magic of making documentaries that when we started the film, we never, we didn't realize that either. Right. And then when you go through it, you're like, wow, that is so amazing how he's like, you know, we have, who is it? I can't remember who says that it's his one is uh, Mary, his one business. So she's like, you know, the black community has Hancock and the Latinos have machete. Right. <laughs> Like even us, you're like, man, that's a cool part. We got to definitely talk about that. That's my favorite part about docs and probably why I'll always do them is that you're moved and you change. Like every film has made me and my team a different person because you do discover things. You do see different points of view. You do look at the world from a different lens. Uh, and when you do scripted stuff, it's just not the same because every actor saying a scripted and everything's dialogue and the actors come in and to them, it is just a paying gig. Like when you deal with the actors, nothing against them, but if they're on for their three days and they're getting paid a hundred grand a day and when they're done, they're done. You don't get them to tweet about it. You don't get them to talk about it unless it's a studio film where that's all encompassed and built in. Like mm -hmm. they don't, but for a doc, everyone goes above and before above and beyond because the stories are, you know, they, they're personal and they're real and they connect with people. So you have all these people willing to donate their time and to share their points of view and their opinions in a way that you just don't get in the scripted world. Yeah. And uh, you touched on it just earlier in that question where you said, um, that's what you love about documentaries. You're constantly discovering something and it's a true story. How important is that for any, um, uh, aspiring filmmakers out there listening for, when you're making a, a film and you're making a documentary to always constantly be searching for more information and discovering, like, is that, is that kind of the beauty of documentaries to you? That is a great question. And that's a great one to, cause I'm going to have to end on this cause I got to pick up my kids. But yeah. I think that is a great, that is what I would recommend to people the most when you're making a documentary, because I've dealt with doc, with directors and creatives that get hung up on like, well, that's not my vision for what I had for this. And I was like, yeah, but your vision is based on a real story. And if that person's real story, when you're doing biography docs anyway, when that person's real story, when they don't connect with your vision, go to the real story. The real story is always more compelling to me than maybe trying to hit a certain vision or the way you want to capture it. But don't be hung on that. The best directors I work with 
are always good at rolling with it and adapting as we discover, right? They're like, oh, wow, that's a new point. I'm going to have to relook at this. I'm going to have to, you know, too often you get stuck in your rigid stuff. And I think, I think that hurts documentaries more than anything because life doesn't work like that. And discovering doesn't work like that. And when you have an interview that changes the way you look at things, even the story you've written, why wouldn't you adjust it? If somebody rocks you to your core and shares something in a way that you were not seeing from before, why would you say, well, I'm going to ignore that and go with what I had written down, right? Like that works. I get it in the scripted world. When you've created a character from this idea you have and you've molded them and you want them to look this way and talk this way and be this way, that makes sense. You're like, no, this is my vision. But when you're discovering with someone and someone starts opening up, you know, and that's something that's kudos to our director and the interview team, when you really start getting someone to open up and they start sharing emotionally in a way that they weren't expecting. And a lot of the times we make it so intimate that these people start getting emotional and start breaking. And even they're like, I can't believe I'm crying because of this, right? Like, go with that and go with what they're sharing. Don't be like, well, no, you know, we kind of wanted to push this narrative, then doing what we talked about earlier with the media, right? We're like, well, I'm going to keep pushing my narrative, no matter what I discover. That would be my you know, biggest recommendation to, to documentary filmmakers. Enjoy that journey. That cliche saying your parents told you when you're growing up, don't focus on the destination, enjoy the journey. If you enjoy the journey with making docs and you're dealing with factual stuff and keep changing and evolving yourself as you're going through the production, it will only make your story better. Cool. And awesome. thank, thanks so much for joining us. It's truly a pleasure to have a, a filmmaker like you who's, who's done so much for, for documentaries and also just the world and uh, globally. So thanks so much for joining us and um, hope you have a good day. Yeah, thank you very much. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate you guys supporting my work even way down under. So I hope you guys dive into the other ones like everything else comes out. So I appreciate it. For sure. sure. Thank have you. Have a good day.